This episode is brought to you by Awesome CX by Transcom. Awesome CX provides high-touch, personalized customer experience services to consumer brands of any size. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the show. This is episode 174, and today I sat down with Greg Starkman, the founder and CEO of InnerSense Organic Beauty. InnerSense Organic Beauty continues to push the boundaries of new product development by utilizing organic chemistry to raise the bar on clean, luxurious formulas with professional performance to care for your hair, health, and the planet. Greg shares his story from growing up in L.A. as the second of four boys with early exposure into the beauty industry, to sweeping hair off of the floor of his mother's salon, to attending beauty school and becoming a successful hairdresser, to meeting his wife and starting InnerSense Organic Beauty together. We talk about how the recession in 2008 impacted his business and became a turning point for him, how he finally began to see momentum in the business 10 years after launching, and why he doesn't like to be the biggest voice in meetings. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us an awesome review, and check us out on stairwaytoceo.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Greg. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your story in building InnerSense Organic Beauty. Thanks so much for joining us. Wow. I'm excited to join you as well. Thank you. I get a wow. That's awesome. Like right from the beginning. Wow. That's great. Where are you located? Where are you calling in from right now? I'm calling from our headquarters in East Bay, San Francisco. All right. San Francisco. I was just there a few weeks ago. It's changed a lot. (laughs) A lot. Yeah. It really has. Yeah. It's been an evolution. The last three, four years has definitely been a significant change. Yeah. Would you say for the better or for the worse? It all depends. I mean, I think that with COVID, a lot of people shifted heavily out of the city, right? So I think that they kind of migrated east, north. Of course, I'm in a pocket of Walnut. It's called Walnut Creek, and we kind of converged the 680 and the 24, and it's right on a BART line. So I think a lot of people have moved out of the city, have kind of moved into more of the suburbs, so to speak. And so, yeah, you definitely see a lot of overcrowding. Of course, property values on this side have really exploded in the last three, four years as well. But it's definitely a much different, I think, a younger sect of people who've really grown in kind of come in as well. And in some respects, it's really, you've seen a lot of young families, which is really, really nice. Conversely, that the city, I, I mean, I'm sure as you've read, has just become decimated. The poverty level, the crime rate is just, 
over the top homelessness. It's just not a very comfortable place to want to be or grow or grow up or even I think people don't even want to go into work anymore into the city, quite honestly. And then I think the only other major noticeable part coming from COVID is that people don't want to get back on mass transit. So the commute into the city is the heaviest I think it's ever been with ridership on BART down. I think the numbers of late are better than 38%. So you can imagine. So a lot of change in that respect. Yes. And we were in the city when we went to visit and it, it was a place we didn't even want to walk around. And we were in, I mean, we have a toddler and we were, we didn't want to walk anywhere because the streets were crazy. I've never seen them like that in my life. And it looked really scary. And this is places like Union Square and places that were typically very safe to walk around. I wouldn't recommend walking around anymore <laughs> like in the city. I mean, yeah. And it says something when a Nordstrom's is pulling out of Market Street, right? Which is, you know, one of their flagship stores, what, four stories. I mean, it was just amazing. But it, it just speaks for the whole climate. And it's it's really an unfortunate piece. Are you from San Francisco originally? Or where did you grow up? Talk to us about your childhood and what it was like. Yeah, I'm a product of World War II. My parents, typical story, they met and fell in love on the East Coast. They migrated to the West Coast, the West Side, actually. So I was brought up in Los Angeles, born and raised. actually grew up right behind UCLA. Spent a lot of my time on the West Side and grew up there. Kind of, I always said I could bicycle between Beverly Hills, Westwood, and Santa Monica Pier, right? And that was my life growing up as a kid. It was my Stingray bike. So, but yeah, after high school, as I started my career, I worked within the city for, for a number of years. And then I actually lived the Redondo Beach, the Esplanade area, which was what we call, you know, the Hollywood Riviera, which is right, right at the cusp of Palos Verdes Estates and uh, Redondo Beach. So it was a great, a great life. I loved, I loved uh, that part of my life. So before we get too much into the adult life, I want to hear more about your childhood and what kind of kid you were. Did you have any siblings and what did your parents do? Can you kind of tell us what kind of kid you were? Well, okay. I come from four boys. Oh, oldest, youngest or what? (laughs) I was the second, and I'm kind of an Irish twin. So my older brother is two years older than me. Then there's myself, and my brother beneath me is nine months. And then there's a two-month spread between the second boy and the fourth boy. So, um, But, you know, we were very aggressive kids. There were no ifs, ands, or buts about it. We fought like cats and dogs. I mean, there's no ifs, and, and ifs, ands, or buts about that. A father who was very successful in the real estate business. My mother actually was a makeup artist. And so she also worked quite a bit in the space, especially in the Beverly Hills area. Had her own makeup line, believe it or not. Cool. That's where the entrepreneurship might come from. Yeah, absolutely. And so she actually had her own salon and spa on Wilshire Boulevard right across the street from the Beverly Hills Hotel. So it was Wilshire and Rodale. 
And so really that was kind of my my early exposure to beauty. So my parents kind of hung out with that crowd. So, you know, it just became kind of second nature for me as a kid. I did a lot of different things. I would work and earn extra money in salons sweeping hair. I would actually fill product for my mom. She'd get these vats from Paris and I'd put base into little jars. It was by no means sanitary at the time. Right. (laughs) There were no standards. But anyway, yeah, so that was it. But I mean, other than that, my parents divorced fairly early on in my like early teens. I definitely became kind of that wayward kid that was always out and about and always in some level of trouble by all means. But my three brothers is probably definitely the black sheep of the family as well. In what way were you the black sheep? And uh, and you're it's funny when you talk about sweeping floors of a hair salon. My mom was a hairstylist. And so I have, you know, I remember when she would have clients come to the house and I would help clean up and sweep the floors of the hair. It's such a funny thing to do as a kid. <laughs> but Well, I think that, you know, one of the things that my parents really always instilled in us is to work hard, right? And I I think I have to really appreciate that because nothing, even though we were very affluent growing up, there was never any handouts at all. It was almost like you you learned early on. And especially as my parents divorced, my my mom was a very strict Greek woman and, and definitely had the boys lining up and we did dishes and we did ironing and we did our own laundry. I mean, there was just, it wasn't a life of a fairy tale. Well, that is, I think uh, she did you a huge favor. And I think those things build a lot of confidence also in kids. When you do everything for them, they're not really building that muscle of confidence that they can do things. Correct. So I think that's awesome. She did that. Yeah, no, it was very, very true that way. So, I mean, I think that as I grew up, I lived a very fast life, both as a teenager into my young youth. So, you know, I got involved in all the things that I think we all got involved in in the 70s and 80s, right? So I was kind of, I always say a late bloomer. I never really figured out what I wanted to do until I was probably in my early 20s. And I think at that point, I kind of felt like I found some level of purpose when I got in the beauty industry. What were you doing? How did you, obviously your mom was in that industry, but yeah, how did you get into it? I was dating a girl, believe it or not, who was going to school to become a manicurist. So she said, well, you know what? You'd be really good at this. So I ended up going to beauty school to become a hairdresser. And again, it was kind of second nature. You know, I want to age myself, but I grew up around some fairly big legends in the beauty industry that my mom worked with. And those were Gene Chikov, Larry Bowser, Dusty Fleming, Vidal Sassoon was part of that Rat Pack in Beverly Hills. And Gene Chikov, of course, there was a movie made of him with Barbara Streisand. So it was very much kind of living in that. And so And at the time, the beauty industry was much different. And being a hairdresser was a much different lifestyle at the time. So I really enjoyed it and uh, got through beauty school, worked for some amazing mentors in the city as well, became a very successful hairdresser, worked at some great salons. And, you know, I think that there was always this itch in the back of my head that I didn't want to grow old behind the chair because at the time... While it was a lot of fun, I was working around some guys that were two, three, four decades older than I were, and they were still doing the roller set, so to speak. And I was just like, there's just no way I'm going to be doing this. 
it felt like there was kind of a ceiling at the top of, yeah, being a hairstylist. Sure. Yeah. And so really, I just always had a, just a great curiosity about what else there would be for me. And really, that began to unfold in kind of the late 80s, early 90s, where I became fairly well known as a stylist educator. I worked for a number of brands doing education platform work as well as education work. So when a company called Goldwell first came to the United States, I became really enamored with that brand. It was a color brand and became connected with the owners and was offered an opportunity to jump from behind the chair into a sales position, which I thought would be great. And I was just overnight hugely successful. And it wasn't because I was a great salesman. I was an amazing educator. I'd educate on what I knew and that generated sales. And so I think that that level of enthusiasm, uh, thirst for knowledge always kind of stuck with me. And then through that, I kind of emerged into a lot of different facets in the beauty industry, working in areas of product development, branding, marketing, and selling. So it was just really from all of that interest that I kind of gained a great deal of knowledge that really has it's kind of driven me for the last 30 plus years. That's amazing. And so where were you? What was the aha moment? You know, how did you go from working for this color brand to coming up with the idea for your own company? Well, I mean, that was many years later. I had definitely had the opportunity to work for a number of very large corporate beauty brands in different facets. But it was really my wife and I met in the beauty industry in 93. We just met and fell in love, had a great mutual and still have a great mutual passion for all things beauty. I say Joanne is my tree hugger, hippie wife, and she's always very much into health. And it was really when our daughter was born with a rare genetic disability, Joanne became a real avid label reader and really wanted to make sure that what we were doing was healthy for the family as well as healthy for Morgan. At a very parallel path, I became really enamored with the green organic movement, especially at the consumer side, and really became immersed in organic chemistry and recognized the emerging trends of what today is known as the safe cosmetic or the clean beauty consumer, and really dove deep into wanting to develop products that would address this specific niche market that was growing rapidly. But the brands that I was working for honestly didn't have the appetite for it, and they just didn't see the market demand for it. But I, of course, stayed pretty committed to it. So it was really in 1999 that I really just decided to begin to dive in and really take a very hard look in exploring how to bring a product to marketplace that eliminated a menagerie of toxic-based ingredients that were known to be in most beauty products, as well as what we call cosmetic ingredients. These are everything from resins, silicones, plasticizers, microplastics. These are all what we call cationic ingredients that make the hair feel great on the exterior, but don't do anything from the interior, right? So ultimately, it just loads up on the hair shaft and really compromises hair health and integrity. So really 
harnessing the chemistry and it wasn't only about the ingredients, but it was also then taking a page from fine skincare and the manner in which those ingredients were curated and processed in order to maintain the pureness and the efficacy of the ingredients. And we kind of took that cosmetic standard and or ingredient standard and brought that into hair care. And that took about a good three and a half, four years of product development because hair care is much different than that of skincare. And so we spent about four years in product development and then we brought the products to market in 2006. Wow. That sounds like a, a long journey. And it sounds like this is, you're like the OG guru of clean hair. I feel like, you know, before it was cool to do anything in the clean beauty industry, you were already going at it long before that. We were many, many years ahead of ourselves and paid the price for it. Sometimes innovation and being a market disruptor collide together, right? And we definitely saw that in a very, very big way. And it took, you know, while we're going into our 18th year, I have to say it literally took a good 10 years for us to even spark at the level of scalability, right? And then we've been on just an amazing growth plane over the last eight years and continue to see just enormous growth globally for our brand. But as the consumer becomes more self-educated, more brand aware, they understand how to peel behind the great amount of marketing out there and really decipher what is clean, what is just washed. That's really where we find our customer. And that's why we continue to grow. So that's what continues to fuel our growth and what continues to keep me very excited. That's awesome. You know, you and I met earlier this year at the Founder Made Summit in New York City, but I've known about Intersense for a while now, and I've been a customer for a while. I think I probably started looking for clean hair care, of course, when I was pregnant, which is like three years ago. I have a two-year-old now, and I really had a hard time trying to find something. And I remember, I think I went to... I know you guys, I think, are at Air One, but there was a store in Marina Del Rey that had a bunch of clean products, too. And I think that's where I may have discovered you guys as well. But it's really hard to find anything organic in the hair care world. There's like no sulfates, no this, no that. Like there's all those, but there's no organic products. And so that's what really made me very excited to try the products. I've been using them ever since. I use it every time I wash my hair. I use your shampoo. It's my favorite. And I feel like not many people have heard of it. Thank you. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, look, getting out there, you know, as I said, we launched in 2006 and we thought for sure there was a huge marketplace for the product. And while distribution thought there was also a huge marketplace for the product, conversely, that the consumer, the consumer and the professional salon stylist wasn't necessarily as ready for it as I thought they were. While there was a lot of products, so to speak, in the Whole Foods of the world, the challenge with that was that when you look at Whole Foods, they really monetized natural hair care. And so it became very difficult for us to compete at a price point there because, you know, those products are being sold for 7 to $8. And when you're utilizing the quality of ingredients that we're utilizing, they're very expensive. And so conversely to that, it's if you'll notice, it's just the concentration of the products that you use from us 
really is also a demonstration of really the, how to explain it. I think we'll kind of roll this back a little bit because I think I kind of got lost in thought for you. But I think when you talk about organic products, I think that we've made a commitment from day one to work with ingredients that were very pure, highly efficacious, that really brought the quality of emolliencies that are required to drive performance into our products, because it doesn't matter how clean or how organic a product is. If it doesn't perform, it doesn't matter. The consumer is not going to come back and buy it. And so early on, what we recognize, especially in natural products, these products, while they might have some really great ingredients, they were very high in water content because water is always the first and cheapest ingredient on the bottle. And so when you're utilizing high rates of water, anywhere between 75, 85% plus, you can sell it at a very cheap price. But when you're utilizing high concentrations of these very ingredients to drive performance and efficacies, you have to utilize them at very concentrated levels. And really to counteract that, we reduce the water weight in our products. So really not only are we utilizing ingredients that are sourced from organic ingredients, but also we're utilizing them at very concentrated levels. And so that is a big kind of point of difference to our product and what has really kind of been the cornerstone of what InnerSense has always been about is purity and performance. And then more importantly, driving chemistry that really meets the needs of the salon stylists, especially within a lot of our styling products as well. And then while doing that, maintaining our commitment to our chemistry mission, and that is to eliminate the use of all polymer or what we would call petrochemical ingredients. And these are ingredients like, again, resin silicones, plasticizers, sulfates is one thing, parabens is another. But, you know, there's new ingredients out there called polyquaternions that are very loaded now in a lot of products that really kind of do the very same things that these other ingredients do that consumers aren't so aware of yet. So part of our mission and the reason why we're growing so much, is just about continuing to educate and inform the safe cosmetic consumer who's looking to make healthier, cleaner choices and do it in a very authentic way. Yeah, absolutely. And when you first launched, what were your key kind of products that you launched with? And then, because now you have so many products and it's amazing to see the variety. You have like the travel trio, which I love and travel with all the time. I love the salt spray for kind of those, I'm in LA. So it's like great when it's hot out and don't want to do anything with my hair. And I use the salt spray to make it a little curly. And then the volumizing foam is amazing. So is the shine that oil is the first time I tried it the other day. And it's like a really great oil serum for your hair. So you have so many great products, but what did you guys start with originally? You know, it was primarily our three hair baths and conditioners, right? The pure color was our two primary hair baths. And then later on, we introduced hydrate really to address the needs of that dry, coarse, thicker textures of hair. Of course, styling tools became also, or styling products became something that we needed to really adapt to really address the needs of the stylist and give them tools. 
One of our most successful products is our Sweet Spirit Leaving Conditioner, which is just a really great product as well. And then really over the last several years, we've introduced a lot more in the way of styling products, as well as treatment tools or treatment products. Our True Enlightenment Scalp Scrub has been a hugely popular product. Our Detox Hair Mask, which helps remove buildup and impurities off the hair shaft and does it in a very gentle way without being disruptive or over astringent. And then this last year, we just introduced our fragrance-free hyperallergenic collection, really to address the needs for people who have got scalp conditions. And then in the last few months, we just introduced our scalp treatment collection as well to really help nourish and really promote follicle fitness to really grow healthier, stronger hair. So I think the thing is that we've been very intentional over the last 18 years and the types of products that we introduce. Believe it or not, we only have 22 products. And it might seem like a lot because we have a lot of different sizes within those products. But for the most part, we just don't make products just to make products. We really bring out products that are intentional, that really make sense in the line, and that don't really kind of cannibalize each other, that have a distinct reason for each of those products. And a lot of those products, believe it or not, sometimes are really driven by our very consumers asking for things. When we hear it enough, it's great for me to kind of go to the bench. It's like one of our sleeper products, which is really a terrific product, which is our refresh dry shampoo. And if you haven't used that, you really absolutely need to get a hold of it because it's a hero product. But Joanne was after me forever to come up with a dry shampoo. And I just kept saying, the last thing the world needs is another dry powder. And I thought that those products to also be really overly astringent on the hair. And of course, leave a powdery residue. Nobody likes that kind of a look. So, and then of course, we would never do anything that would be a propellant or an aerosol. And those aren't very environmentally, or I think from a health point of view, very safe for consumers. And so I really kind of went to the bench and created this foam to powder and so it comes out as a foam. You just emulsify it. And you work it into the roots. It helps. It's got amazing ingredients, a little bit of witch hazel, also has pullion, a little bit of rice and quinoa protein. So it really helps dry up oils, helps create root lift as well as add hydration. It dries very, very quickly and it leaves no such powder residue at all. Those are the types of products that I look for new and innovative ways to help create that really also stay allow us to stay within our ingredient mission. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Customer service and call centers are rarely topics that people get excited about, but Awesome CX is simply different. Their inclusive culture rooted in wellness and fun means that their teams are encouraged to be their best selves personally and professionally by providing them with everything from mental health and healthcare resources to career development. And regardless of the size of your business, Awesome CX is uniquely positioned to support you throughout your growth. They work with some of the fastest growing startups like FabFitFun, Carbon38, Lettuce Grow, Mudwater, and so many more. Want to see it to believe it? Just email me directly at lee, L-E-E, at stairwaytoceo.com to request to join one of their coffee chats where you can meet with their amazing team and witness the agent engagement yourself. You'll be so impressed. I can't wait for you to learn more about Awesome CX to make your brand's customer experience awesome. 
Thank you so much to our incredible sponsors for supporting the Stairway to CEO podcast. Now let's get back to the show. When you look back over the past, I guess, 18 years in building this business, I'm sure there's been so many ups and downs. What are some of the biggest challenges that you've had to overcome? And I guess second question to that is what's kind of surprised you the most about this journey in building this business? Well, look, by all means, when I did the business plan, I'd work for big businesses. I knew what it was like to roll out products. I had the experience and the business plan was beautiful (laughs) and we executed by design. There was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It was by design, but what was on paper and how we did it and the results were two different things. And we rolled out into a marketplace that we thought for sure there would be a bigger demand for our products than there was. We struggled. The first two years was really kind of a real struggle to gain momentum as well as to get the traditional salesperson to talk about our products because they were talking about other beauty products. We weren't the only thing that they were selling. So they didn't necessarily want to educate their buyer because they didn't want to hurt what they were selling. So that was probably one of the biggest pieces. Second to that, we also ran into 2008, huge market crash, huge economy dump. I mean, it was just really tough. At the same time, our distribution channels were going through a huge market compression with a lot of cannibalization of one buying the next. Our biggest country distributor was a company called Beauty Alliance. They were subsequently purchased by L'Oreal. And we then subsequently, within a week's time, were basically terminated from them. And I think that really the turning point at that point was we were sitting on about $385,000 in inventory. I literally felt like everybody had kind of ran for the hills and I was kind of left holding the bag. And the turning point for me was I wasn't going to give up. And It was really the early adapters and the phone kept ringing that just kept me believing that there is a market here, we'll find it. And so subsequently, the next five years was really trying to find a marketplace, whether it be in the professional salon, we were in Whole Foods for a while. We really kind of also focused on building a direct-to-consumer business through DTC, We really engaged with a lot of early beauty influencers. So at that point, it was just about pivoting and really kind of doing it at the grassroots level. We didn't have any funding. There was no such thing as, you know, traditional private equity funding at that point. It was still very early stage. I think also at that period of time in 2008 to 2010, people were really conservative. If you just didn't have a revenue pace of positive pace. No one was going to take you seriously. And so really it was over, you know, that two to four year period of time where we just were really working hand to mouth. I literally walked out of an office in a warehouse and moved my business into storage bins in my garage and just to continue to survive. But really I kind of come back to, it was just perseverance and it was an, an unwillingness to fail. And thank God Joanne maintained her salon career at that point, because without it, I don't know how we would have survived. But as I said, every entrepreneur who lives this hard dream knows there's going to be a lot of lean times, but then all of a sudden you hit a tipping point. 
So I think that 2016, 2018, we just started hitting a tipping point where we just started started seeing great momentum, great love for the product, and started getting some amazing support along the way. And we haven't turned back. I mean, today we occupy close to 50,000 square feet. We have well over 50 people working here. We have offices in London. I mean, I couldn't have said to you eight years ago, this is this is the way this business was going to be because it was a very dim place. It was hard to continue to, to kind of visualize forward. Yeah. And kudos to you for not giving up and persevering. And I mean, it's easy to say that in retrospect, because here you are, right? But in those moments which I'm sure got dark, a lot of entrepreneurs are like, I can't do this. I got to get, I, some would throw in the towel and just say, maybe it's just not the right time in the market, or we gave it a shot and look, it just didn't work. Or there's so many reasons why I think a lot of entrepreneurs might give up during those moments. And so it's really awesome to hear that you didn't and here you are. And you're also one of the success stories. I'm sure there's people that have had those moments and then they go through another dark one. And they're like, okay, how many dark moments can I take? Right. And then they're not where you are. So it's really a game of perseverance. So kudos to you. It is. And I think, look, as an entrepreneur, you're constantly, I live in constant criticism of everything I'm doing. You know, it's never good enough. I'm constantly that. Someone gave me a card a long time ago. It's actually on my desk. It fell over on the other side, but it's just self-doubt is part of the creative process. So I live to that. I'm glad you said that, by the way, because I always ask about self-doubt. I always I like to ask these successful CEOs. I come on my podcast and I'm like, was there ever a moment where you felt like, you doubted yourself or you had that self-doubt or you thought things would end. And everybody has the moment. We're all human. It's amazing to hear that it's part of the creative process. And I agree with you. I think it's just part of being an entrepreneur. Everybody feels it. Even if they feel confident, sometimes they also feel really afraid and not sure if they can make it. You know, it's just natural. Well, you know, again, we all survive with the weight of the world on us, right? Payrolls, businesses, there's just a lot. And, you know, in the beauty industry right now, it's very fast paced. It's moving very quickly. My wife gets mad at me when I read the trades because I get brand envy of all of this newness that's coming out. It's very fresh. They're raising $10, $20 million to do what they're doing. And, you know, but I also have to remember that the attrition rate is very high. You know, the failure rate in this space is as high as being a restaurateur, so to speak. So it takes a lot. But I think that with any business, one of the things that's really benefited me is really connecting with peers, both young and old that are tenured and some that are breaking ground because I learned from them. They're able to benefit from my experience and guidance and some things that they come up with on the tech side of marketing is mind-blowing. I mean, you look at AI, I mean, to me, it's a fascination, right? Of wow, what how does this work? Versus someone who's young and innovative, it's second nature to them. And so to hear them talk about it is mind-blowing to me because and it's and it's exciting versus when they hear me talk about chemistry. I'm sure that it really blows their mind. So there's the benefit of that. So I really kind of stay tapped in. I just feel like InnerSense is a very stealth business in the sense that we just continue to grow at a very rapid rate. And we're not 
constantly seeking the next round of funding. We're not looking to be acquired at this moment. I mean, just think the thing is, is that we're able to just do what we're doing and stay in our lane and we're doing it really well. Have you raised any capital? We have not. And there's been no need for us to. I think that when you kind of grow up the way we did this business, you learn to manage a PL and you learn to build really healthy reserves. And we've really done that. And we survived through COVID without even having to lay one person off or shutting down for a day and continued to grow through that period of time because we were able to pivot, even though there were seismic shifts in where that business was coming from. But we were able to continue to, to pivot and continue to be successful through that period of time. And while I think that growth capital is a good thing, you have to be very clear on what the expectations are of that and be prepared as a business owner or a founder or a CEO to execute and deliver the expected results of what that is. And I think at this moment in time, there's no need for us to live under that kind of pressure. Right. And so I know that you, you know, we talked about this earlier, you're very passionate about fighting for better cosmetic standards. And you mentioned that the standards for cosmetics haven't been changed since 1939. Is that what you said? And can you kind of elaborate on where things were back then? What What is that? And then I guess that's still where we are today. So where do you think and hope things will go and when? Yeah, I mean, so part of our mission beyond just making products, we're a B Corp. Our mission in action really kind of covers people, planet, and purpose. And part of that is really being a proactive participant in the development of federal cosmetic standards that don't exist here in the United States. Um, we are the only industrialized country that does not have a formalized cosmetic standard. The last time any relevance of a cosmetic standard was established was through the Food Act Labeling Act of 1939. And it doesn't even provide the FDA any type of oversight to personal care products. The only time the FDA gets involved or has any type of standards is if you're making a medical claim, i.e. like a dandruff shampoo or an acne product, then you need to go through what we call FDA validations and clinical certification. But other than that, there's absolutely no cosmetic or ingredient standard or safety standard or safety testing that's being conducted in the U.S. And so really, the EU was probably one of the first governmental consortiums that came together and created the REACH pro program. This was back in the mid and early 90s. I became very involved in it as the EU standards became really more you know, apparent and companies used to receive what we call EU directives telling us what ingredients that were no longer allowed. A lot of U.S. brands, believe it or not, started making dual formulas, a U.S. formula and an EU formula. And you'll be really surprised. One of the last formulas or one of the last companies that participated in that practice was Procter & Gamble with Head & Shoulders Baby Shampoo. And it was really through pure consumer pressure that they eliminated that very practice. So with that being said, we work with a number of peer brands as well as NGOs in really crafting cosmetic legislation as well. So we've just submitted the Safer Cosmetic Bill 
back into Congress, which has been back through on a number of occasions. We also participate and help draw up state legislation with regards to ingredient and product and fragrance transparency, which is really important as well. The Myrna Act that was part of the cosmetic bill that actually was passed as part of the omnibus bill in December has begun now to allow the FDA to begin to register products and create some database. So it's an evolution of modernizing the cosmetic industry here, but there's also a lot of industry resistance to it, so to speak. Nobody likes regulation and oversight. I get it. But when it comes to product safety and consumer safety, I think it's absolutely critical. Absolutely. It's crazy how backwards things are here sometimes. <laughs> it's just mind blowing. Yeah. It's mind blowing. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. It's not good for anybody to be exposed to these really harmful chemicals. And it's amazing that you're so passionate about this and you're trying to push things forward from a legislative perspective. That's amazing. And I'm just curious, what do you think that is the biggest thing from a leadership perspective you've learned? Because how big is your team now and how have you grown personally and professionally as a leader? I'm still growing, right? I'm still learning new things every day because I'm also, as a leader, trying to back away and allow the team, the autonomy to kind of do the job and stay out of the weeds. And it's kind of ebb and flow because I love to be in the game, but at the same time, I need to let the, the team go out on the field and do the job and make the decisions. I often say, look, we're not making jet engines, so when mistakes get made, we can kind of get through it. Sometimes those mistakes can be a little bit more costly. I allow that to happen, although it's painful, but I just feel that part of my growth is mentoring and inspiring people to be passionate about what we do. But it's also about building a great team of people around me, which is something that I've really begun to do as well that really participate in driving our initiatives, especially culture, business continuity, as we continue to scale and grow the business, there's a lot of moving pieces. And so I just simply can't do everything. And I have to be okay with that and not feel guilty that I can't do everything because I almost feel like I'm supposed to be the smartest guy in the room and I'm learning not to be. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure, I'm sure, to feel that way. I think a lot of leaders and especially CEOs feel like they need to have the right answers. When did you kind of realize that about yourself and learned and tried to shift or what kind of made that come up for you that you realize, okay, I want to take a little step back instead of being too much in the weeds? I got to a point of such overwhelm. Mm, like burnout. I wouldn't say so much burnout. It just almost became just sowing. It really became a point of a lot of anxiety. And just feeling very, yeah, just overwhelmed. And instead of just feeling like it's okay if I'm in a meeting and I don't say anything, right? And I read an article about that. Sometimes the most successful CEOs are the ones that don't say much, right? They provide guidance, but they provide it at a unique cadence. It's not like they are the biggest voice in the room. So when I'm in meetings, I really do my best not to take over or lead, but again, be there and provide the input that I feel is really relevant instead of feeling like this is the Greg show. 
And then sometimes I have to do the same thing when we're on the phone with customers. And I feel like the customers want to hear from me and I have to let the customer hear from my team and have that confidence that I have my team's back. So I think it's just letting go, right? And just kind of stepping away. I mean, my wife and I both are working hard at trying to travel more on business, be out, be more customer facing, let things happen here at the offices, hiring people who really lead the company from the inside as well, and know that we don't have to be here every day of the week. The business will continue to run. Yeah. And when you went through this kind of overwhelm, this period of overwhelm or anxiety where you realize I want to take a step back, were you working? Did you decide to work with a coach at all? Did you work with a therapist? How did you kind of navigate that, especially for entrepreneurs tuning in that might be feeling a lot of overwhelm themselves right now? Yeah. So I do work with the CEO coach. She's really amazing. She herself has led some Fortune 500 companies and really has some really good insights and and really good guidance for me. And I do really appreciate that. I also do participate in a CEO group. So I do get to also hear similar stories from much different verticals which is good too. I think everybody is kind of facing very similar challenges on a day in and day out basis. A founder CEO is different than a CEO that's just coming into a job, right? It's a much different type of personality. So I think that sometimes it's just about letting go of your baby, knowing that it's in good hands, not feeling like you need to micromanage it. And Joanne and I, because we've worked together for so long, we actually also work with a therapist that specializes in entrepreneurial working couples and families. And she's equally as amazing as well. So, I mean, I think that it's just about constantly growing. And I think more importantly, I said to Joanne, we don't have to worry anymore. We are at a point in our life where we don't have to worry anymore. There's nothing left to worry about, right? It's just like, We've made it. And now it's just, it's time to sit back and enjoy it. And, you know, there's always that fear in the back of your head. Oh, you're not going to see double digits. Okay, well, when's that time going to come? All those things that you worry about. If you're not growing, what happens with the business? But I don't worry so much about those things today as I did yesterday. Well, it sounds like you have surrounded yourself with the right people. And I think a lot of the successful entrepreneurs, CEOs that I talk to, they have these kind of support groups, essentially, right? Whether it's a therapist and a coach and a community, that those things are all really, really, really helpful. It's it's a trend I've seen on the show almost in every interview. So amazing. So I guess in terms of there's so many entrepreneurs out there, being a founder is such a hot topic. Everybody kind of wants to build a business. What advice do you have for people that want to dive into the trenches and might be a little nervous to put their toe in? Don't do it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I mean, I say run. Look, if I knew then what I know now, would I've done it? Uh, probably because I'm kind of a gambler in respect. Yeah. You have to have like a high risk tolerance. You have to have a high risk tolerance. You have to have an unwavering commitment to what you're doing. And you know what? You're going to get knocked down at every level. And you just have to just keep going and find your way. You, and you have to be willing to pivot. If you're not willing to pivot on a day-to-day basis to generate revenue and to kind of find where you're at, you will fail. But you have to be willing to 
just learn at a lot of different levels. And it's not always easy, especially, you know, when you come out, you raise some money and you think you're all good, that money can go away real quickly. And then you're kind of left with inventory and your investors going, well, if you want money, go sell product because it's sitting, that's your cash sitting, right? So you just have to kind of really lean in there and you have to be willing to do everything. And on your darkest days, you need to just roll up your shirt sleeves and dust yourself off and just keep going and always find a way. I think that the hardest thing for most entrepreneurs, and I have to say, honestly, I live this myself, on the days that you're failing, the last thing you want to do is be facing. You don't want to be customer facing. You feel like you're a huge imposter, right? But that's when you need to be at the forefront. You need to be in front of your customer. You need to be constantly out selling your business, no matter what's going on behind you. You just need to just have that sales face on every day, no matter what happens. And that's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, that is very, very tough. Because like you said, it's not only imposter, it feels fake. It feels like you're being a fraud. Yeah. I guess imposter. I guess that's basically what that is. But it feels like you're faking it, which you are. And it's okay. Even Gwyneth Paltrow will tell you that she's had imposter syndrome. Consider it an acting job, right? It is. Everybody has to be a Gwyneth Paltrow. (laughs) If you want to be CEO, you got to be an actor. So welcome to acting school. There is that word, fake it till you make it. (laughs) (laughs) Improv. Take some improv classes. You'll be fine. Yeah. I think, again, my only advice to an entrepreneur is you're going to hear a lot of negatives, right? And you've got to build really thick skin. And you've just got to go out and find your place. And sometimes you'll end up where you didn't expect. But if it's helping you to get to where you want to go, then don't deny it. And try to enjoy the ride while you're just enjoy the journey. That's true. Greg, thank you so much. You know, I've been such a fan of your product and your brand for so long now, and I'm so happy I discovered it. And now I got to meet you and hear your story and building it. So thank you so much for creating such a high quality product that I've been loving for years. And for those listening, you can go to innersensebeauty.com to check out their products. Highly recommend. And Greg, thanks so much for joining me today on the show. Thanks, Lee. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.